you know, coming out of the woodwork now, uh, from all the virtual launches that we had during the lockdowns, we're actually getting out there and actually driving cars for real now. We are indeed. And uh, you and I and Brenwin, we were both on uh, the new Porsche 911 Turbo S launch. Um, you guys were down in Cape Town last week. I was uh, driving it earlier this week. And uh, at the same time, they launched the new Cayenne GTS, which was also pretty impressive. But uh, coming out of a 911 Turbo S, even that seems a little bit slow. I don't know what you guys think. Well, that uh, 911 Turbo S is certainly quite brisk. It's not often that you accelerate a car using launch control and you can actually feel the blood draining out of your head. But that's what I experienced in the Turbo S which uh, zooms from rest to 100 in acclaimed 2.7 seconds. And by the way that those G-forces felt, I had no trouble believing that claim. I don't know whether you tried the, uh, the launch control as well, Thomas, but I know Brenwin did, and uh, he seemed just as excited about it as I was. <laughs> I sure did, and I remember at, at our lunch stop uh, complaining to Dennis that I had a slight headache because <laughs> yeah. that launch control was just that brutal. It totally is. I mean, I tried it many times. Um, we had a fantastic test route, um, a lot of long, straight, empty roads where we could uh, pull over and, uh, you know, indulge ourselves. Uh, that car just accelerates like nothing else out there. The way it puts its power down onto the tarmac is just incredible. But to me, what was even more impressive was the way this, this car handled. 911 turbos, as we know, Aren't, aren't always the sharpest of driving tools in the 911 range that uh, on a normally goes to the GT cars. But uh, Porsche has done a, a great deal to finesse the handling and dynamic qualities of the Turbo S. And uh, we got to drive it up front shot pass. And I was, yeah, it was really good. It's engaging, tons of grip, lots of feedback. It's a phenomenal, phenomenal car. And I think the older I get, the more I want a little bit of comfort, you know, a little bit more sound deadening, softer, more supportive seats. And that's what the turbo offers, you know. It's an everyday, livable, drivable car. Insanely fast when you feel like indulging yourself. But from a day-to-day -day point of view, it feels no harsher than a Golf GTI. I mean, I think they've done a, a phenomenal job. That's, that's always been the, the magic of the 911 in the way that it combines those two discordant disciplines. And I also found it, we drove it for several hundred kilometers and it was a comfortable drive and a normal commuting car. But when you press the sport or the sport plus mode, then it just explodes into angry action. And I also drove it through Francheuk Pass and it's really so pinned down, it's such a sweet handling vehicle. I mean, I think it really could be the world's most perfect sort of day-to-day uh, -day supercar. Absolutely agree with you. And also, I mean, when you factor in how much it costs, it's just over 3.8 million rand. When you look at how much comparable performance cars cost, I mean, uh, I don't know what a, a McLaren 720S is going for these days. It's probably up in the 7 million rand range. You know, uh, a 911 Turbo S starts to look like pretty darn good value, uh, considering how much you get for your money. It's difficult to tell most people that uh, 3.8 million is good value. But yeah, as you say, in this context, compared mm. to what else you can get, it certainly is good value. Yeah. Well, look, um, to all you listeners out there, you can read uh, Brenwin's impressions and Dennis's impressions and my impressions in the next uh, coming days. Brenwin will be in the Sowetan and on Times Live Motoring. And Dennis, uh, your impressions are obviously going up on Thursday on uh, BD Motor News. 
correct? Doing business day motor news, that's right, yes. Yeah, brilliant. Well, lots to read there. Dennis, and you flying back down to Cape Town again for a, a launch of a two-wheeled, I won't say a super bike, but uh, it's a pretty cool bike. I am indeed. So uh, BMW is taking on Harley-Davidson with its R18 Cruiser. And uh, I've seen it in the metal, and it's a monster of a machine. It looks like something that could be used as a ship's anchor. So that uh, we'll see what it rides like. You know, I'm not necessarily the world's biggest cruiser bike fan. I prefer something that turns a bit better and is maybe a little bit uh, more nimble. But we'll see. This is all about laid-back cruising, lifestyle kind of biking, and, and we'll see if it uh, fits the bill. Yeah. Interested to hear what you think. I mean, I've seen them. I've seen them before. I've seen them in action. It is a monstrously big bike. Um, you need a lot of space to turn them around. But I think BMW's done a, a fantastic job on it. And they just seem to be building bikes that appeal to such a broad spectrum of consumers. I mean, they've got their radically fast sports bikes. They've got their cruisers. They've got off-roaders, tourers. They really seem to be at the top of their game at the moment. Yeah, they certainly have a vast range and they're filling every niche. Yeah, yeah. Well, cool. I mean, I, I look forward to reading uh, your impressions about that. Going to move on over to Brenwin. Brenwin, what's been happening in your world? Have you been driving anything interesting? Yeah, yeah, I, I have. Um, well, I mean, in addition to that 911 Turbo, I've, I've been putting a, a whole lot of mileage on on that Polo GTI long-termer that, that I often like to talk about. Uh, uh, recently went from... Joburg to Cape Town to PE and back to Joburg, a nice uh, a nice loop, just a leisurely loop, you know, over a yeah. weekend. As one does, yeah. Uh, uh, you know, as one does, just get a bit of fresh uh, Cape air and um, mm. and stuff, and, and that was good. But but on my radar uh, this week, um, I saw something really interesting, and that's uh, about the revival of of the brand Hummer. Uh, and I'm sure you gentle, gentlemen remember Hummer, that brand birthed from uh, military roots with boxy, bullish vehicles that were adapted to civilian applications and popularized uh, thanks to cameos in various hip hop music videos and films. Now, I mean, we knew that the revival of the nameplate was imminent, uh, and now it's official. GM has resuscitated it, and this time it's electric. Uh, and also, Hummer is no longer a standalone brand, but it will be offered under the GMC banner. So aesthetically, it stays true to the, the templates of its forebears, still designed using only a ruler, and uh, with enough presence to frighten even the most obstinate polo driver out of the far-right lane. Its electric heart delivers 746 kilowatts and a whopping 11,500 foot-pounds of torque, which translates into 15,591 newton meters. It's not a typical error. It's, it's ridiculous, actually. It's insane. And then, and then GM claims a driving range of, of 560 kilometers on a full charge. So can we expect it in SA? I wouldn't hold my breath. Uh, I mean, we, we know, all know that GM disinvested from the country uh, rather abruptly in 2017. And so a return uh, would seem unlikely. Still, it does look really cool. It does. And I'm sure one or two might end up in South Africa. You know, we've all got these diehard Hummer fans and people, you know, with a bit of cash like to stand out with uh, quirky cars so you know maybe we might see one cruising the streets of cape town or joburg sticking with americana dennis you've got the inside story on a very very fast bespoke american sportster yes it seems to be quite a week for sports cars and uh, an ssc tuatara which 
most of our listeners have probably never heard of, but this has become the world's fastest supercar. Uh, British racing driver Oliver Webb set a new production vehicle land speed record of 508.73 kilometers an hour in this car. And this was an average of two directions. So on, on the one run, he actually managed even faster than that. He went almost 533 k's an hour. It was only because of heavy crosswinds that they weren't able to go the same speed in the other direction. But anyway, that Kunisek Agera RS, the Swedish supercar that most people also haven't heard of, probably, uh, said 47 kilometers an hour. And just while we're talking about these amazing high-speed feats, a Bugatti Chiron, which uh, more people probably have heard of, achieved 490 on a German test track last year. But it was a single direction run, so it didn't count as it didn't count as an official record. But anyway, it's quite amazing to see what uh, road cars are, are able to do nowadays. Over 508 kilometers an hour for a, for a road car that you can actually buy. It's it's absolutely insane. I mean, if you had enough fuel and no speed limits, you'd probably get down to Cape Town in just over two hours, which is. Uh, which is absolutely phenomenal. Uh, do you have any idea how much it, it's um, retailing for? I know they're only building about 100 of these cars. That's right, yeah. About 99 of them, I believe. But no, I don't, mm. I don't have a retail price. I'll, I'll have to look into that. But uh, yeah, it's, it's probably a bit more than that Porsche 911 Turbo S we spoke I, about earlier. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it certainly is. I mean, um, I saw reports of it you know sort of going for 28 million rand i don't know if, if that's true or not but it kind of sounds like the ballpark figure for something as special as that car is um what else is happening guys uh, from my side see the toyota land cruiser prado has been updated it's now got that uh, new 2.8 liter turbo diesel engine that's in the new facelifted hilux so you've got a little bit more power a little bit more torque and uh a six-speed box. The old car had a five-speed box. So yeah, that's that's uh, that's that's quite big news if you were considering getting a Prada. Now's the time to do it. And um, if you have a small business, uh, Mahindra's now got a new panel van called the well, it's a KUV hashtag Express, you know, and it's it's just a, a nice affordable little panel van coming in at just under 180,000 rand uh, arrival to that Kia Picanto runner that came out earlier this year um, yeah so if you if you need a, a stoic economical little panel van that's probably worth a look in that 180,000 rand price tag is uh, is quite attractive I think to to small business owners and florists and such like so you know yeah. that, that seems to be a bit of a trend after that Kia that you've just mentioned as well so we no longer exactly. have ha- half-ton buckies, except for the Nissan NP200. Uh, things like uh, the, we obviously lost that uh, Chevrolet or Opel Corsa bucky. Mm. So uh, that's why these these little the panel vans that are based on hatchbacks are coming out of the woodwork now. So it's an interesting trend. Yeah, and I mean, they, they actually make quite a bit of sense, you know, because obviously uh, the side windows and the rear windows are blocked out. Um, so from a security point of view, um, you know, it's just safer to transport your cargo in something like that. And yeah, I mean, it is r- really good value because that Kia Picanto runner is now just over 200,000 Rand. It's gone up since it, it first launched. So yeah, I think Mahindra should do, do pretty well with that car. I think that's it, guys. Brenwin, anything else before we, we sign off? 
Uh, not really, Tom, uh, other than to say that I, I'll, I'll be driving some new cars in the coming weeks. Uh, I'll be driving the, the new Hyundai uh, Grand i10 on Thursday, which I'm really looking mm-hmm. forward to. I've always uh, fancied that car in that category, and uh, I think the styling revisions that they've endowed on, on this updated version should, uh, should go down well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Cool, guys. Well, Dennis, uh, enjoy your motorbike launch. Uh, Thank you, Thomas. That you're escaping this terrible heat for the cooler Cape Town uh, climate. And uh, yeah, just be be safe out there. Thanks a lot, Tom. Like it, guys. Cool. We're going to take a quick break. And when we return, we're going to be joined in studio by a special guest. So stay tuned for that. Join me, Nicole Engelbrecht, your host on True Crime South Africa, a weekly podcast that covers both solved and unsolved South African true crime cases. Welcome back to Cogumentative. In this segment of the show, we're joined in the virtual studio by Robert Walker, who is the director and owner of the Sassel Solar Challenge, a unique and sustainable motorsport event that's been soaking up the sun since 2008. Robert, thanks so much for finding the time to join us. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure, and uh, thank you very much for having me. It's always cool to have um, interesting guests on the show, so yeah, it's... Uh, a real treat to have you here today. But before we go any further, Robert, I just wanted to, to know if you could perhaps tell our listeners a little bit more about who you are and what your role is at the SSC. So uh, my name is uh, Rob Walker. Uh, I'm a, I am run an events, uh, events specialist company. Uh, we kind of specialize in, uh, dare I say, pretty off-the-wall events, so not your, not your typical stuff. Uh, we tend to try and work uh, really exclusively on, on things that we feel uh, a bit more strategic and probably a bit more uh, that move the needle, so to speak. Um, so not just your, you know, your average uh, events, uh, although they're great and they're, they're their place so we really try and differentiate ourselves by doing stuff that's uh, that's different my role in the sassel solar challenge uh, is uh, i'm the event director so i try and, and oversee uh, all the various portfolios of the, of the event from uh, competitors to regulations for to education and obviously a big big part of my uh, role is also uh, working with our sponsors and partners um, across the country so i spend a lot of time uh, trying to align with uh, various sponsors and uh, government bodies and and NGOs and interest groups. Uh, So I spend a lot of time uh, talking the talk when it comes to Sassel Solar Challenge. Okay, well, that's good to know. And then, you know, uh, for our listeners who might not be familiar with the Solar Car Challenge, can you give a quick rundown about what this event entails? Yes, yeah, so so the the event was uh, founded in two thousand and eight uh, by a gentleman called Winston Yordan, and he he ran it for a number of years. Uh, we took over it uh, at the end of the or the conclusion of the twenty sixteen event, um, and and ran the twenty eighteen event. And obviously, we're supposed to have run the twenty twenty event, uh, but you know then then COVID happened. But basically, the the Sassel Solar Challenge in its uh, traditional form is a, a, a eight day uh, challenge. 
for uh, for teams, uh, mostly university teams, but also high school teams as well as privateers, to drive a, a vehicle uh, powered exclusively by the sun from Pretoria down to Cape Town. And if that weren't enough, what we also throw at the teams is the opportunity for them to rack up more kilometers on each day uh, at our kind of pit stops or our control stops, as we call them. Um, and what we give the teams there is a, is a loop uh, on the route of that day where they can then try and rack up many more kilometers. Uh, so to give you an example, last year, the last running of the event in 2018, the Dutch team, uh, which was then known as Nuan, uh, now are called Fattenfall, uh, from the University of Delft, they accumulated over 4,200 kilometers uh, between Pretoria and Cape Town uh, using only the power of the sun uh, to power them through, through, the, through the course and down to Cape Town. The cars are basically exclusively designed for this, and they really are tip of the spear vehicles. You know, m- most of them weigh uh, less than about 200 kilograms. Uh, they have extremely, extremely low rolling resistance, um, and they are engineering marvels. Um, lo- most of them use space age materials and technology, um, and they really do uh, push the push the envelope as far as finding the ultimate when it comes to efficiency. Um, and efficiency in our game is balancing the the energy that you can generate from the sun uh, versus the the energy required to drive uh, as well as also um, store in your in your batteries Uh, at their core solar cars are actually evs so they have a electric drivetrain but unlike traditional evs and teslas and and jaguar i-paces that the people would know uh, which get their energy from a wall socket or a charge point uh, these cars actually generate that energy uh, from the sun so in, in essence, it is a distance first race. So the, the person who clocks the most kilometers from Pretoria to Cape Town over eight days uh, wins in, at, at, its, at its most basic form. Okay. Um, now, this might be a silly question that you get to ask quite often. What happens if it's a cloudy day? Or if it's a, a rainy day, do you, do you guys just you know, throw in the towel and have a, a rest day? Or um, are these cars able to actually propel themselves a little bit um, without the sun on uh, power that they've managed to, to store in their battery packs, if they have battery packs? So, so, so it, it actually is a great question, and we do get it all the time um, because people hear solar and they and they believe you know the car must run uh, only in hot weather and bright sunshine. Part of the South African uh, challenge with the Sasa Solar Challenge is unlike the other events around the world, uh, for example, the Bridgestone World Solar Challenge in Australia, uh, weather is a big part of our event. Uh, so yes, the the teams have batteries, um, and again, this is the efficiency debate that the teams have to go through. If you have lots of batteries. It's great, but you also add lots of weight. And if you have lots of weight, then you require more energy to move that weight. So teams are always looking for this optimal balance between how much battery is enough battery um, or how much creates too much weight for them. So so they, they, that's the first decision they take. What a lot of the teams will actually uh, end up having with, our, with the event, especially in South Africa, is they will have a, a forward chase vehicle, which will be a day ahead of, uh, of the race as we come down, or, or the challenge, I should say. Um, and that, that will actually be a weather vehicle. And they'll be monitoring the weather conditions coming in. Um, many of them subscribe to a lot of data that they analyze mountains of data on the move. Uh, they have uh, teams of data analysts, um, and they will actually be trying to understand and anticipate what the next weather, the next day's weather is going to be. Um, so, for example, in 2018, when we rode from 
Uh, I'm just going to get my towns right here. Uh, into into Sedgefield, uh, we went through Carrillo, um, and we 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 basically. As we arrived through Sedgefield, the clouds the clouds grew, came in and they and they, they, the clouds came over and we woke up the next morning to a, a, a quite literal torrential downpour um, and the teams drove the whole way from Sedgefield to Swellendam. Um, they did they did loop stops they did everything. Um, so what the teams really are doing is analysing all the external factors um, the day before and then, then they're deciding okay how fast they're going to drive because if they drive a little bit slower in a sunny day then it gives them the opportunity to recharge and replenish their battery in anticipating that the next day is going to be a day where they won't get that much charge um, so they, they try and avoid the situation where they get their battery down to low percentages, you know, 10, 15 percent, um, because if they get down to that point, then they actually need to pull over on the side of the road uh, and they will charge. Uh, and listeners who who have uh, seen the solo challenge coming through their towns, they would have no, they will see some teams, um, they get that calculation wrong and then they do have to pull over to the side of the road. Uh, they lift their array up and they have to charge for half an hour, 45 minutes in order to get their battery to a a stable level. Um, the top teams in the world really talk about the, the challenge, uh, both ours and, and the Australian one, uh, about it's, it really comes down to battery management. Um, you start you start the event uh, at the start line with a 100% charged battery um, and you, you go down through the first day and let's say the first day is a bright sunny day, you, you use 30% uh, of your battery to get to the first uh, overnight stop, uh, but you only manage to recharge 25%. So in, in layman's terms, you now start the next morning with a battery that's 95% because obviously they can't charge the batteries overnight. We seal the batteries uh, every night, so they can't charge them. Um, so it's really important that you manage your battery as you go down through the days because once you start getting closer to Cape Town, the teams will start running their batteries lower and lower. Obviously, uh, a team doesn't want to cross the finish line in Cape Town with a battery that's still at 60 70% because that means that they could have been going faster, which would have maybe given them more kilometers, and, and that would be a higher result for them. Uh, on, the, on the flip side, you also don't want to be pulling over on the very last day when, when teams are chasing hard um, and having to, to charge or not be able to do a final loop stop. Uh, to give you an idea, in 2018, our top teams were only separated, I think it was by, I think at the end of the day, it was 42 kilometers. Um, and now that both of them have done over 4,000 K. So you're talking about a 1% error of margin, uh, or margin of error, I should say, between the top teams. So it's it's really, really important um, that the teams manage that, that battery pack. It actually sounds quite scientific. And um, one has this idea that it's just a driver in a solar car uh, driving along the highway. But I guess most of the race is won or lost by quite a big support team. And I'm sure that there are people there with computers and suns and maths and all kinds of things like that who will then communicate to the driver and say, you know, here, we need you to speed up here. You must slow down. Um, is that correct? I mean, I mean, is yeah. it, it, you know, is it quite a support team heavy 
event. So, so, so it's it's actually it's actually this is this is really an interesting side of us. It's probably the one form of, and, and we don't refer to solar car solar car challenging as motorsport, but um, a lot of viewers will understand motorsport. But it's it's probably the one form where the driver is, and and with respect to the drivers of solar cars, yes, driving a solar car is not easy, especially in crosswinds. It's it's not an easy thing to do. Um, but most of the time, they are the least most important cog of, of the wheel. Um, the, the the engineering that goes into these cars uh, and the science behind what these guys do. Uh, to give you an example, in, in Australia last year when I was there, I witnessed a team that calculated the exact speed that they had to drive so that when they got to, there was a stop and go for, uh, in the middle of the outback, funny enough, there was a stop and go for them fixing a, a cattle grid. Uh, and the team had a forward, forward control car um, that worked out the exact speed that they had to drive so that when they reached this point they wouldn't have to stop and that the um the, the car the light would go green and their car and their team could go through unabated and wouldn't have to slow down because obviously slowing down unnecessarily is is the is the kind of the worst thing that you can do with a car that's seeking efficiency you want to try and keep that car maintaining an exact speed um without any bumps so the, so the teams are incredibly full of engineers and scientists and they calculate every nth degree um, we've had teams that came out in 2018 that drove the route twice before we actually got down um, and they were calculating uh, angles of turn they were calculating inclines and declines um, and they calculate all these all these aspects to ensure that when the driver's in the car they can say to him okay uh, for the next 10 kilometers the optimal speed to drive is 66.5 kilometers an hour um, or go, going down the downhill you know, please let off this is a long downhill we need to maintain and they they work out every aspect to maintain efficiency. Um, so the teams arrive normally in South Africa, uh, some of the South African teams, with up to fifty people in the team. Um, and these are analysts. These are weather specialists. They are uh, they have teams of battery specialists. They have uh, electrical engineers. They're, they're full of everything. Um, that you could possibly imagine to support the drivers and obviously support the car. Um, and what they do is they, they, they analyze every scenario. We, we've had teams before where they've even analyzed the impact on what would happen if they got a flat tire and how that would affect them and how they how fast they could change that flat tire um, in different stages of the race and what that would mean for them so for these guys it is it's really about um, pushing the envelope as far as you can and, the, and these cars are like like most motoring cars they're designed on a knife edge um, you know, they, they so easily something can can uh, not go wrong, but so easily a, a bump or a hard uh, crosswind or something can can uh, offset the cars. Um, and the teams are, are are planning for that to make sure that as much as possible that they run a, a perfect race. Um, and I think uh, most teams are out there who, who hear this would agree with me is that there's no such thing as the perfect race, but every single team tries to tries to cross the finish line to say they race their their race or their challenge uh, to 90 percent of what their plan was. Um, and either they come first or they come you know stone last as long as they as long as they competed to 90 percent of what they wanted to compete, most teams would be happy for that. Um, it's it's just the the amount of 
data that these students and these participants uh, consume and go through um, is 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 utterly phenomenal. And and any any aspect that you can think of around an open road challenge um, that would that would affect any any performance issue. If you think what I was talking about earlier about the the, the winners of the event were separated by a one percent error of margin. Um, so if you can find that your analysis of the the wind, for example, uh, coming down um, the passes into Hrafrenet, if you can time it so that your car receives a tailwind instead of a headwind, uh, you can quite easily gain that 1% over your competitor. And that, that's how fine and how, how uh, detailed these guys go down to. That's incredible. I mean, it sounds like they could give some Formula One teams a a run for 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 their money. You know, I, I've seen I've seen things. I saw things in Australia, which is the world where the best teams come, and 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 they've got analysts on analysts, and and, and it looks like Formula One teams. It, it is it is utterly phenomenal. And these are all students. These are guys uh, who who are you know in the ages of between twenty and thirty. Um, many of them are actually now. I know of two people who actually are part of Formula one teams um oh. who are chief strategists because strategy strategy uh, that's that's everything that that plays its part yeah no, absolutely and i mean um segueing from formula one um that's a sport that's going to see a lot of big changes in uh, 2022 where uh, many parts are going to be standard standardized um and all teams will have access to them um, in the solar car challenge are there certain parts that are standardized like do all teams have to have a, a same size battery pack in terms of kilowatt hours what parts are mandated by you guys and what parts are open for interpretation so so what we try and do is we have a we have a set of technical regulations um where we do try and we, we try and allow the engineering creativity to come through um and the reason is, is that because at its core we are we are an engineering and science challenge so to to standardize too much um would would, would actually defeat the purpose of of the event which is for people to, to push the envelope however what we do do is uh in 2016 uh bridgestone world solar challenge shrunk the solar array size from six square meters down to four square meters um, and that was because the the arrays of the cells were becoming so efficient um, that the cars were actually becoming far too fast so the amount of energy being collected was 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 too much um, so we, we we shrunk the arrays down um, we I know for example in uh, for the Bridgestone World Solar Challenge and we work with them so that we have a um, very much of a, a similar set of regulations so the teams competing in both events don't have to design completely new cars um, they when they released their regulations uh, two three months ago there was a it's basically two main types of solar arrays that the guys use there's a silicon based cell and there's a gallium masonite based cell um, and the gallium masonite is is incredibly more expensive so the top teams with lots of sponsors go with gallium masonite uh, because it's a higher efficiency uh, model but the silicon cells are a lot more cost effective um, and it creates a bit of an uneven playing field so for the next bridgestone world solar challenge next year in october uh, you you actually may not use gallium masonite cells so they, they've put a technical uh, re restriction in to try and force the innovation to make the cars a a little bit more affordable but also a lot more 
real world scenario. Because ultimately what we're trying to do is develop uh, technology such as the in-wheel motor, which was actually developed on a solar car many years ago, which now you see in the EVs out on the world, um, that makes it into commercialization. So using something that's prohibitively expensive doesn't push the envelope. So what we what what happens is every uh, two to four years, uh, the the big events get together and we discuss how we can put limits on the teams, not necessarily in terms of batteries or kilowatt hours, because the efficiency battle will do that. Because if the if the teams want a massive battery with a lot of kilowatt hours, they're gonna they're gonna lose on the weight side. So so the the natural way of how the the, the challenges run. Will, will, will lead them to find the most efficient solution for their car. But what we try and do is, is, is bring it back a bit when the, when, the, when the technology starts to push too forward. Um, another change was in, in 2018 when I was in Australia, or 2019 I should say, um, we were talking about how the solar car drivers are all the smallest guys on the team. So normal, you know, I, I'm a normal South African guy, I'm six foot, um, I couldn't envisage getting into a solar car because I'm too big. Um, so now what's happened is the occupant cell of the solar car has been required to be a certain size to fit a certain type of individual. And again, that's then challenged the teams to say, right, uh, teams, you know, you need to make sure that a normal person can can get in this car, so to speak. Um, so what, what we try and do is instead of limiting the engineering side, because that's where we want the teams, we want them to push the envelope, we want them to come with um, the next evolution of what mobility is going to look like uh, in 10 to 15 years time and and that mobility is going to come from events like the sasa solar challenge what we rather what we rather want to do is we we try and limit them where there becomes too much of a gap between the teams that have a huge amount of funding and and have massive sponsors um, and the teams that don't and we try and make sure that we keep that gap um, as tight as possible uh, through through limiting them it, it just makes it more fair because um, at, its, at its heart, we're an engineering challenge. So if we gave a set of regulations which prevented the teams from pushing the envelope, then there wouldn't really be much point in it, so to speak. Mm, no, absolutely. We've touched on efficiency very briefly. I mean, how fast can these cars actually travel? <laughs> you know? um, so, so without naming and shaming any teams out there, uh, we have, so so we've clocked a team before, um, and I won't say where because they received a penalty for us, but they were doing in excess of 100, uh, they were doing about 140 Ks an hour. Um, really? Wow. Yeah. Okay. So, That's quick. So they, they, are, they are quick. Um, they, they are obviously designed in wind tunnels. Um, I mean, I remember we overtook a, a car uh, in Australia um, from one of the smaller teams. So the team that won the Bridgestone World Solar Challenge last year from from Darwin to uh, to Adelaide, they averaged uh, just under 90 kilometers an hour over four days. So, so you can imagine if that's the average speed, and that includes stops, that includes uh, pit stops, you know, it includes everything. That was their average speed in terms of their race time and how, how they and what they got there. Um, that means that car is is traveling on average about 100 k's an hour all the time, every time. So that that's it's it's real world speeds um, that these these guys are doing. This is this is always something we I, I'm fascinated about. Whenever we bring solar cars out, people see them and they see how they're small and they 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 streamlined and they they're at the extreme. And people think, oh, okay. You know these cars will only do 30, 40 k's an hour, and then we then we let them go. Um, and yes, they, they they don't necessarily accelerate, you know, like a like a race car. Definitely not. 
But once they get up to the optimal speed that that team has determined, they will hold that speed quite happily uh, over over insane distances, you know, hundreds of kilometers. Hmm. Amazing, huh? absolutely amazing. I didn't know that they were that rapid. Um, no. Now, I mean, would you say that the learnings uh, from the solar car challenge are starting to trickle through to the man in the street? I mean, is there a, a technology transfer coming out of uh, the yeah. event that, that manufacturers can start to use in, in their cars or, you know? I, I think I think the, the, the rate of adapt, adoption uh, of the technology is probably faster than, than and I, I'm, maybe the guys who are traditional motorsport guys will, will hate me for saying this, but I think we, we probably are, are significantly faster than traditional motorsports. And the reason I say that is it's obviously all the manufacturers now are, are chasing uh, are chasing future mobility and cleaner transport and and all those good things. Um, but there's there's a there's a car out there um, at the moment being developed in the Netherlands called Lightyear One, um, and Lightyear One is actually founded by previous solar solar challenge uh, participants um, and it runs it runs purely off of of uh, solar power um, and it's it's a it's a workable car it, it works. Um, but in, in the previous years, we've seen, especially when it comes to battery technology and, and motor technology, because the teams are constantly on the hunt for smaller, more efficient motors and, and, and ultimately lighter as well. What they what they do is, uh, you know, they, they, they develop the, this technology, which they they push to the cutting edge um, and very quickly it is getting adapted by manufacturers. So I, I believe personally that batteries that we see in the future, uh, which have longer ranges, uh, which are more efficient um, and, and, and allow people to drive further, those those batteries are being developed right now by people people who competed in various solar challenges around the world. Um, Elon Musk very famously tweeted, I think it was two years ago, um, he, he, he looks first to hire engineers out of the Stanford solar car team um, because they're at the cutting edge. And that means that those guys, the, the tech that they're developing, um, it finds its way very quickly because if you're looking for an EV car to be able to go far, ultimately it needs to be as light as possible with a, a battery that's as efficient as, as possible that also charges as quickly as possible from whatever energy source. Um, those three aspects are what makes also the most successful solar car. If the, if the car can charge off a small light solar array, it can retain that charge within its battery uh, to a high degree. The battery doesn't have to be heavy and, and weigh a lot. Then it means that what they've, what they've achieved is efficiency. Um, and, and ultimately, I believe that's why we see the technology trickling down very quickly because the team's goal and most manufacturers' manufacturers' goal now is similar, is efficiency. Um, that's what they're looking for. And now, um, I mean, if I wanted to enter this, um, is, it, is it open to anybody or is it open to universities only? Or, I mean, is there, is there a strict criteria or basically if you feel like making your own solar car and you've got the money you know are you able to enter yeah. so what we what we do is 90, 99% of our entries are from universities just because of the uh, requirements in terms of uh, the capacity the departments you require the engineering that's going in 
But that being said, is we don't uh, we don't look away from privateers. We have had privateers enter in the past um, who who have you know put their own cars forward and and or, or funded a team, so to speak. Um, we are really encouraging and driving a, a lot more high school participation. Uh, we had a we had a great we've had high school teams enter since 2016, um, and one of our strategic goals going forward is is to is to grow this still, um, probably in a, in a class that will be a little bit more accessible for the high schools to, uh, to operate in. Uh, but really, the, the goal is to, is to try and um, get the guys when they're 15, 16 uh, into, into solo car racing and into engineering. Uh, so we plot almost a 10-year path for them. So by the time they finished their degrees at university at 26, um, they are, they, they've been with us for about 10 years. So it is open to anyone. Uh, we do have a quite exhaustive set of technical regulations. So it's important that you have, uh, you know, people, if you want to put together a private team who, who understand, you know, electrical engineering and, and all the, all the bits and bobs that go along with it. Uh, it is open for anyone, but we, we normally suggest that, uh, if somebody's within a faculty or, or they, they're passionate to want to get involved, um, Nine times out of ten, we direct them towards a university or their local university uh, to become involved in a project or to lead a project uh, with the support of of the universities. Um, it's just it's it's a it's a more successful, sustainable way of of, of being involved. Sure, I mean that high school program uh, scheme sounds fantastic. I think um, if if I'd had that back in high school, uh, <laughs> I probably wouldn't have dropped science after standard seven. So yeah, yeah I think I think that's uh, I think that's a a really clever idea that you guys and, got and, there. and I think you've summed it up, man. I like to be honest with you. For us, we we need to, especially in South Africa, we need to get as much of our youth not dropping science and maths and 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 the and, and the subjects that they need to. Um, and and this is one way that we've seen it. And and I say it a lot of times when people ask me what what for me sum up the Sasso Solar Challenge, and I say it's very simple. When when I when I'm going through some of the most rural parts of South Africa where towns that most South Africans won't even know. If I said to you, please point this town out on a map, you wouldn't even know where it is. Um, and we engage with the youth and they, they they see the opportunity that engineering and science can afford them um, and that they don't have to walk a certain path in life, which would you know potentially be a, part, a path of, of being in the rural areas. They, you know, this, this, is, this is technology that can take you to the moon. Um, it, it's, it, it is changing lives on, a, on, a, on an ongoing basis um, and we see it every time we go down the road and, and with the support of Sassel we, we, ha- we help change the, the perspective of, of, young, of the young guys out there to see that actually engineering and, and, and mobility and, and science is something that is exciting and it is cool and, and you should stick with it yeah, totally, totally is. Um, we're running out of time, unfortunately, yeah. Rob, but um, this year's event was was canned, obviously, uh, to a certain pandemic, um, yeah. but uh, it's been rescheduled for 2021. What dates is it going to be happening and what can people look forward to? Is there anything special on the cards for next year? So, so the event was postponed till February 2021. Obviously, due to COVID, uh, we need to make sure that everyone's safe and happy and, and and looking good. The the event in February is going to be a a track based event. 
uh, held at Red Star Raceway out in Delmas. Uh, they've graciously allowed us to take over the whole event, uh, the whole venue, I should say. Uh, and we're going to be running from uh, the weekend of the 20th, uh, 21st of February, up until the Friday, the 26th. Um, we will we'll hopefully, fingers crossed, be open to public, uh, government regulations permitting at that time. Um, and we, we're looking for, we still have been, have been really pleased with a, a collection of both international and local teams who, who will be attending um, and the teams will still have to compete for a distance first event which will which will be uh, determined on the ra- on the racetrack uh, they'll have to cover a, a certain set distance every day uh, with every kilometer thereafter uh, credited towards them um, so we're still going to be following the, the traditional format uh, however, what we are going to be doing is broadcasting the event on various live stream platforms for the whole event. So anyone, no matter where they are in South Africa, they can tune in. Uh, if they're used to us coming through their town, they'll be able to tune in. They'll be able to see, meet the teams, interact with them. Uh, essentially, what we've what we've decided to do, and again, with with we wouldn't be able to do this without Sassel's uh, support is we've, we've, we're going to create a physio virtual event. So we've, we're physically going to be at Red Star Racing um, in, a, in a pretty much bubble like you see for Formula One, keeping everyone safe and COVID-free. Uh, but we're going to interact and engage with, with our audience and the schools, our schools program. Everything else is going completely virtual. Um, and we're going to be reaching out to, to tens, of, tens of thousands of viewers every day uh, from around the world who will be able to follow the event uh, in, a, in a completely virtual environment. Um, and through this way, we're managing to keep both our spectators and our um, teams, you know, hopefully safe um, and, and also being abiding by the, the regulations uh, that government has, has set out. Very, very cool. I mean, yeah, uh, streaming is the future, as we all know, with Netflix and Hulu and all these other, you know, fantastic online media platforms. So, yeah, I'm yeah. sure you guys will reach a much uh, broader audience not just in south africa but also internationally red star is very cool yeah i know it quite well um great great group of guys there as well it is yeah so hopefully i can i can sneak in and and see you guys in action because i'd love to see these cars actually They, they they sound really you know exciting cutting edge next level science so yeah Hopefully, I can, no, I can come along to that. We would love to have you, man. And uh, yeah, please, it would be, be great to have you and, and uh, yeah, show you, show, you, show you what the future of mobility looks like. Yeah, no, fantastic. I'd love to see. If people want to find out more about the Sassel Solar Challenge, where can they go? Do you guys have a website? Do you guys have an Instagram account? Um, so yeah, so we have we have uh, a, a website which is uh, just actually being updated as we speak. It should be live in the next day or two. Uh, it's solarchallenge.org.za. Um, on there is everything everything you could possibly want is on there so if you if you're intrigued and you'd like to look at maybe entering a team into our 2022 event where we'll go back down the road uh, the technical regulations are there you can have a look at everything uh, they can find us instagram facebook uh, and twitter uh, you just have to search uh, sa solar challenge um, and we'll we'll come up we're, we're all over there we, we we post content on a daily basis um, all sorts of things from engineering content to team content to the community of solar racing so if people want to engage with us there we're, we're very very active uh, all over the digital platforms um, and as we ramp up towards February's event uh, so that activity will only increase uh, and we would welcome you know anyone to engage with us there and chat to us ask us questions uh, if you're a student and you're looking to get your university involved 
uh, drop us a line. We'll, 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 we're there to help you guys and, and we'll try and get as many South African teams involved as possible um, and also hopefully get them over to Australia to, to go and uh, compete on, on the international stage and, and wave the South African flag high. Fantastic. Robert, listen, we are out of time, unfortunately. But uh, again, thanks for taking the time out to join us in the virtual studio. Um, it was really cool to hear all about the, the Sassel Solar Car Challenge and the ins and outs and uh, something to look forward to next year. Yeah, no, thank you very much for having me. It's been a, been an absolute pleasure and I hope, uh, yeah, I hope we get to chat again soon. Me too, me too. That was Robert Walker, the director of the Sassel Solar Challenge. And uh, folks, that's it for this episode. We are out of time. We hope you enjoyed it and uh, we hope you'll join us again for another episode of Cargumentative.